now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, listeners? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow list nerd Jason Kleberg, and this is the Force 5 Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. Once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away, there were three brothers who loved opera and owned a theater in Shanghai. But it wasn't long before they bought their first camera and made a silent film out of one of their popular plays called The Man from Shenzi. This turned out to be a hit, and they formed a film production company in 1925 called the Tiani Film Company. Their earliest films, New Leaf and Heroin Li Fifei, were a hit in Shanghai, but a rival studio had other ideas. The Ming Zing Film Company formed a syndicate with five other Shanghai companies to monopolize the distribution and exhibition markets, which made it difficult for Tiani films to be shown in theaters. The brothers, however, were not ones to be outdone. So Run Run Shaw traveled to Singapore to establish their own movie distribution business for Southeast Asia. In 1927, they opened their own cinema in Tanjong Pagar and later expanded to Malaysia, where they opened four cinemas. Their chain eventually reached 200 cinemas in Southeast Asia by the 1970s before it went into decline. I am of course talking about the Shaw Brothers, who also produced some groundbreaking films like the very first sound-on-film Chinese talkie, Spring on Stage, and the first Cantonese talkie, White Golden Dragon, which was a massive hit. They even moved their film production operation from Shanghai to Hong Kong to avoid the Nanjing government's ban on martial arts and Cantonese films called Movie Town. And Movie Town continued to expand in the 60s and became the largest and best equipped studio in Chinese filmmaking with state-of-the-art filmmaking equipment and facilities and 1,300 employees. They produced a slew of popular period dramas, music dramas, and of course, kung fu films, which included some of the amazing movies me and critic Simon Abrams are going to talk about today. Now, before we get to the Shaw Brothers and their classics on the last show, me and my homie Mitch Burns talked top five sidekicks, and of course, the internet was quick to let us know what we missed. Not in the top five. Did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. <laughs> I can't believe. Who, who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. We got a ton of suggestions on this one. Ryan Smith said Wilson from Castaway. I hate the movie, but I got to admit, great sidekick. Lencho Rubio said Chewbacca, of course, and Doc Holliday, great pick. If I had seen Tombstone recently, Doc might have been on my list. Ken Cunningham came through with Watson, various iterations, of course, playing second fiddle to Sherlock Holmes. William Crane, Hit Girl, yep, that was on my short list. Bruce Perky, Marty Feldman as Igor in Young Frankenstein, definitely a solid choice. And I'm going to finish up here with Peter Beta, who said, I am shocked that Sam Wise Gamgee was left off both lists. He literally carries Frodo up Mount Doom after Frodo chose Gollum over his best friend and cast Sam away. The age of man could never have been without Sam Wise the Brave. He was also a good cook. And being a great cook is definitely 
a, uh, an amazing trait in his sidekick. So thank you for your suggestions. If you want to get your comment read on the show, head to Twitter at Force5Pod, Instagram at Force5Podcast, or on the Cinematics Facebook page. I ask the question every time I got a show coming up. Before we get to Kung Fu, uh, we got a movie to talk about, a movie I saw this week. Recently on Twitter, I was having a DM conversation with one of my followers, Jackson Boren, about film genres we'd like to see make a comeback as a possible top five list in the future. And one of the subgenres that I started thinking about was the mall film. In terms of film locations, the mall is one of those rare geographical time capsules. I mean, when's the last time you've been to a mall? In the 80s and 90s, the mall was like one of these weekend destinations. I remember being a kid and and like being excited when my mom would take us to the mall, this big, shiny, bright mecca of commerce. And then as a teenager, a mall opened in our town and we just go hang out there all day long. I mean, it's pretty much where I saw every film as a teen from 96 to 99. And because of this excitement, mall films have always been the subgenre I'm kind of drawn to. Dawn of the Dead came on TV when I was pretty young, and I was thinking it was so cool that people were in the mall all alone when it was closed. Chopping Mall, Night of the Comet, Mall Rats, all really fun mall movies. But there's one that I had never seen, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. He's there. Behind the wall. Beneath your own feet. You all tried to destroy him. In your greed, you tore everything precious from him. But Eric remembers. What if Eric didn't really die in that fire? And now... (laughs) Eric will make sure you remember too. Eric Matthews is still alive. Now, aside from the name of the film and the goofy mask that the disfigured man lurking in the shadows cuts from a mannequin, there's no connection to the original property. This film is about the opening of the Midwood Mall, the new beacon of jobs and taxes in any town USA. However, to get the mall built, the person in charge of the project had to convince a family to sell their house so they could raise the land. They refused, so the manager of the mall hired a guy named Volker to go burn it down with the family inside while a guy named Eric and his girlfriend were about to have sex. Now, the girlfriend got out, but nobody else survived. Yeah, a lot of stuff goes down to get a mall built, so next time you go to the mall in your town, think about what it took and how many families had to burn alive to make that thing exist. A year later, the mall, of course, built... But what Volker and his boss didn't know is that the family's son, Eric, actually lived. Now, horribly scarred, he has built a lair in the basement of the mall where he lifts weights and practices karate while he plans his revenge against those who interrupted his attempt to get laid. And, of course, the murder of his family. His ruse to blow the joint up is paused when his then-girlfriend, Melody, starts working at the mall. And he does what he can from the shadows to keep her safe. Other people to spend time with in the film are Herve, the mall owner, Karen, the mayor who is very excited that there's a new revenue stream in town, Peter, a photographer for the newspaper who's trying to crack the case of Eric's house fire because he has the hots for Melody, and Buzz, the yogurt shop employee who has his ear to the streets. 
Let's start with the highlights here. The cast in this film is actually pretty good. Rob Estes plays Peter. He's always been a beautiful man, but he looks great in this film. This is really, I think, his first big role. Playboy's February 1988 Playmate of the Month, Carrie Cannell, plays Melody, and she's serviceable as the lead who turns into the damsel in distress. I thought she was decent, but I also do understand why she didn't get any flashy lead roles after this. Polly Shore, who I typically rank one rung, just one rung above Carrot Top on the entertainment scale, was actually not too bad in this. He hadn't yet hit his MTV VJ fame, and he was basically a stand-up comedian at the time, so his weasel persona hasn't really taken shape. He plays uh, this kind of comic relief role as a yogurt shop owner who plays pranks on hot females by putting gummy body parts in their desserts, but he's, you know, he's, he's natural, I guess. Jonathan Goldsmith, who has had a long career in smaller parts, but now is probably best known as the Dos Equis guy, is pretty good as the sleazy mall owner. And Morgan Fairchild, who is probably the biggest star in the film, is fine as the town's mayor, who has a real hard-on for the revenue the mall is going to provide. The entertainment value of Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, is pretty high, and I imagine it's even higher now with the nostalgic value that 80s mall films provide. No matter how many times Stranger Things tries to make you miss the mall, it's never going to compare to something filmed during the time period. This was filmed at the Sherman Oaks Galleria, a mall that's been the setting for many films over the years. I mean, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Commando, Back to the Future Part 2, Terminator 2, those are just some of the movies that have been filmed there. It was fun looking into the backgrounded scenes and finding stores that no longer exist, like your Walden books. Or, um, you know, what the window dressing in a 1989 Victoria's Secret looked like compared to today. There's a scene that quickly enters like an old Suncoast video store that was particularly fun. The music is also really great. Stan Bush, primarily known for his film ballads like The Touch from 1986's Transformers, performs the Phantom and Melody's song called Hearts of Darkness. The film also features a Vandal song that was never released elsewhere called Is There a Phantom in the Mall? Kind of a dumb title considering the movie we're watching. And there's even a Randy Jackson song on here called Tonight. The kills are also pretty good and the practical effects definitely give them some charm. Highlights include a decapitation, a man's eye being pushed out of his head, and a man getting his face pushed into a fan. Now for the bad, aside from the title, which suggests that this is a sequel to something, I guess, the screenplay is the weakest part of the film. The story is terrible and makes no sense. Let's talk about Eric for a second. How has he been living in the mall's basement this whole time without anybody knowing? Where did he go in between the time his house was burned down and the mall was built? The reason why the story is so disjointed actually starts to make a whole lot of sense once you dig into the film's special features. For the first time in years, Arrow, 
got the original screenwriters on to talk about the process, and in a refreshing change of pace, they don't hold back. The film was essentially hijacked from them. I was able to find the original script, simply titled The Phantom of the Mall, online, and they weren't joking. Every character is different. Some characters are morphed into one. The Phantom crawls through air ducts in the mall like an alien. There are intense dream sequences that feature faces being ripped off and people being burned alive. There are a ton of different changes, and the love story actually makes sense and makes you feel for the characters in the original screenplay. Despite those flaws in the story, I still had a really fun time with Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, and if you're looking for an 80s mall film, I mean, this is pretty entertaining. And Arrow, I tell you what, they did a great job with this disc. In terms of extras, of course, we have a ton of interviews. We've got a new audio commentary with director Richard Friedman, moderated by filmmaker Michael Felsher. We've got a new audio commentary with Ewan Kant and film historian and author and somebody I've been trying to get on the show for like a million years, Amanda Reyes. There's a like 45 minute documentary uh, making of thing with a ton of different interviews with the director, the screenwriters, actors, uh, makeup effects people, like just a ton of people. There's alternate and deleted scenes from the TV cut. And then there's a second full disc with the TV cut, which runs 89 minutes long. And then there's a composite fan cut, which combines footage from both the original theatrical and TV cuts for what they call the ultimate Phantom of the Mall experience that runs 96 minutes long. So this disc is packed. Arrow did a great job with it. Highly recommended if you want just a, a, a touch of the 80s. And again, it came out in 1989, but it's a really entertaining film. It's not high art. Uh, it's one of those grab a beer movies and have a good time. I, I, it looks great. Highly recommended. Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, 1989. Go check it out. Speaking of checking out, you need medical supplies for the whole family? You're going to find them at Unita Medical Supply, which is tonight's sponsor. Is your partner snoring all night? They might need a CPAP. Sure, they're going to look like Hannibal Lecter for a bit, but you're finally going to get a good night's rest. Can't breathe? They've got inhalers. Bitten by a zombie? They've got band-aids. And braces, they've got every kind of brace you're going to need. Knee braces, neck braces, back braces, and brace yourself for this one. They've got the best prices in town, guaranteed. Stop by You Need a Medical Supply in Louisville, Kentucky, and tell them the Force 5 sent you for a free sample of Trioxin with any purchase. You Need a Medical Supply. You need it. They got it. All right, let's get into some Kung Fu films with Simon Abrams. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. My guest today is a legendary film critic, historian, and author, Simon Abrams. Simon, how are you this morning? Or I guess afternoon for you. <laughs> yes, uh, thanks very much, Jason. Uh, uh, I'm pr doing pretty well, can't complain. I feel like there's so much that I want to ask about, but I'm going to start with your career as a film critic. Sure. What drew you to your profession? You have bylines pretty much everywhere, but I know a lot of your stuff I've read is on RogerEbert.com. What drew you to the profession of film criticism? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think, honestly, it was a couple of things, uh, probably very early misconceptions about what a film critic does. 
which is, you know, <laughs> just watch movies and, you know, that's their job. And uh, there was also, I really loved, this is kind of embarrassing, but I really loved the 90s cartoon, The Critic, with uh, John Lovitz's the over the the obese uh uh jewish film critic jay sherman and uh that was for a number of reasons very uh it spoke to my heart um but honestly it was partly because um i i used to just love going to the library uh, across the street the queen's library in little neck and uh i used I, that like made me want to just keep taking movies out and when i saw brazil when i was 13 that made me love movies even more and get like even more serious and then in college i was told like you should be writing down about these movies you should be keeping a journal and then that led to well i should be writing about it like for um stuff like the the nyu paper or like uh i tried uh the new york press that was my first professional film criticism thing so it was like it it was kind of just one thing after another that kind of logically made me realize like yeah that makes sense that that like that that could work um but it was it was no um all at once kind of decision it was just it just kind of snowballed you know sure yeah do you find that when you're a professional critic that you watch movies differently or that you like start to lose the enjoyment of watching movies because you have to watch certain movies or is it still that where you find the hidden gems that still kind of make it all worth it Oh, it's, it's a mix. It's really like you have to do certain things to change when, especially when you're, you know, you're writing about something. Um, I've been really forcing myself and lately not so much forcing, but I've been making myself take notes more and more because, um, if not just for quotes and descriptions, it's super helpful in terms of gauging like your mood. Like if you can capture while you're watching a movie, like the, the, uh, feelings you're having while you're watching it, that's really, helpful for later on um but as for just the the holistic experience of watching movies it's um i definitely do still love you know just uh looking at the the show times for the empire 25 on 42nd street or uh, any number of uh theaters uh that get often written off because they're chain theaters and just kind of seeing like oh what what's the what movies are showing that like i've never heard of or was like oh that's that's something i've heard is quite good uh, or like there's something that like I, I really should catch up with and it's uh it's a, a, a real pleasure to to sometimes when there's no professional obligation to just let the the hype and all the anticipation for some of these movies just kind of um get away and just and, and just uh try to enjoy whatever you're looking at um it's you know sometimes you have to to clear that space and make that space for you to 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 have that enjoyment but it's still uh, very much something that I actively seek out because, you know, it's still uh, one of my favorite things to do, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a question that I always ask critics. And uh, typically they'll they'll say the same thing. Like there are those films where you know you don't have to write about it. So you just kind of let it all melt away and enjoy. And it brings you back to those times where you didn't feel like watching movies was work. And yeah. sometimes I feel that, that same way with the show here because I do reviews here and it's like, well... What am I, how am I going to talk about this on the show? And when there's something that I know I'm not going to have time to review, it kind of makes that experience a little bit better. <laughs> For sure. Especially when it comes to stuff that like, not just stuff that you really want to enjoy, but stuff that like, you suspect that you're reacting to the, um, the response more than to the movie. So like, for example, yeah. I really want to go into John Wick 4 
with as clear, uh, just like with, with the best possible mindset. And so I'm giving it another couple days because I didn't care for the second or third one. I still really like the first one, but like, mm-hmm. I just, I really need to, to, to let like the, the echo chamber clear a little because right now I'm seeing a lot of the same comments and I'm like, I, I believe that there's probably some truth to that, or I hope there is, but like, after the my my negative response to the the second and third one, I'm just like I I need to give this a moment, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm gonna see that one tomorrow. Hopefully, it's good. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to like it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I like the third one too. So okay, um, I I know I'm going in with heightened expectations. So we'll see how that goes. Nice, Simon. You're also an author of a few books, which we'll have links to in the show notes. The newest is The Northman: A Call to the Gods, a collection of stories, photos, and interviews, all about Robert Eggers' dark, epic Viking film, The Northman. That must have been a really cool experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, The Northman is a movie that I was uh, very excited to uh, be asked to write about. I read the the script first because we weren't sure if I'd be able to see the movie. And then I watched it uh, a couple times uh, during the course of making uh, the book and interviewing the people for it. And uh, what was so refreshing was that um, each time I rewatched it, it would like to reorient my focus so that I was looking at um, the costume designers work or the um, the cinematographers, uh, the effect that his his work has, or, you know, uh, Anya Taylor Joy's work or something like that. They, they kind of made me appreciate even more just how much detail and how much craft and and um, character really went into this movie. So it was it was really a pleasure to uh, to talk with Robert Eggers and his collaborators because they all have this kind of um, kind of obsessive uh, orientation for uh, for for that kind of storytelling and um, I definitely would not have seen what I now consider to be a really really terrific movie um, for what it is. I mean I, I liked it before and I was like this is good but it's not you know the lighthouse or the witch and then I, I kept thinking about it and learning more about it. I'm like mm, it might be his best movie like this is this is really 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 good. Yeah. So it was it was a, a great experience for sure. When you think about the logistics and stuff to get that movie made coming from the witch and then the lighthouse and then having this immense budget and putting together this just amazing spanning epic where people are fighting in front of lava yeah. <laughs> at the end of it. I mean, just really a, a, an amazing tale. And you can find all that in that book. And uh, as I understand it, there is a limited edition coming out that should be out really any day once this gets posted. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, it's uh, currently scheduled for, I forget the exact date in April, but it's a limited uh, edition of the book. So it's slimmer, but it's got like a book plate. I believe it will be signed by uh, Robert Eggers and Alexander Skarsgård. It's, I'm not sure what the the run is limited to, but um, it's one of those uh, specialty items that uh, if if you want it, you you gotta gotta be sure to, to put your order in quickly because uh it's it will definitely run out is all i'll say yeah no kidding so the link for that will be in the show notes and uh if it's not released by the time that this show posts i will post that in a in a tweet at some time when it is ready to go so pay attention for that get the limited edition you know i'm sure it's gonna have more than signatures it'll be awesome and uh re-watch the northman in preparation for that too let's transition into well actually you know what before we talk 
kung fu films, I just I, I like to give people a breadth of your taste or the, the guest taste. So what are some of your favorite movies of all time that might not be on a Shaw Brothers list? Oh, for sure. Um, definitely Brazil, um, because that was mm-hmm. and remains like just a, uh, a, a movie that speaks to me on a lot of levels. Um, I used to also really love uh, Kurosawa's Dreams and uh, most Kurosawa really, but that movie when I first saw it as a kid really just like it, it hit me so hard that for a while I couldn't get through like the first, I want to say like three or four of the little vignettes that make up the film. And um, I've since like become really uh, obsessed with that movie. So for that one, for sure. Um, trying to think what else I, I obviously love uh, and have become a big advocate for uh, John Borman's Zardos, uh, mm. which is something I won't shut up about, um, as people uh, who follow me <laughs> on social media know. Uh, but Zardos is just such an amazing um, and still kind of uh, underrated, as low as I am to use that word, but it's a, it's it's such a, a, an amazing miracle of a film. Um and as far as recent stuff, um, I've been really kind of obsessed with a, a number of movies uh, like Mad God, the Phil Tippett stop motion uh, nightmare fantasy. Um, I just saw and am becoming kind of obsessed with the new Luis Estrada film, uh, Que Viva Mexico, which is uh, not to be confused with the Sergei Eisenstein film, but uh, uh, it's it's kind of... a a very strange three hour uh, domestic farce about uh, a guy, this yuppie, although he's not that young, but this, this urban professional who comes back to his uh, really more rural than not kind of home to his estranged family who all try to uh, capitalize on his dead grandfather's inheritance. And uh, it's, Mm. it's a really uh, bleak and, I think for some people, probably a little broad kind of comedy, but like, oh man, if you like Alex Cox movies, you're going to really like this one, especially because um, Louis Estrada, the director and writer, is uh, he used to be uh, uh, colleagues and, and they, they uh, with Cox, and he's, Cox is actually oh, in okay. Estrada's film um, Herod's Law, and I think he was a big champion of that movie, if memory serves. Like, I think he was like, Alex Cox presents Herod's Law, and... Uh, there's there's hmm. points of contact in other words although their styles aren't completely the same but like if you like an alex cox movie like highway patrolman Viva mexico is like you're just like where the fuck did this movie come from it's kind of like it's like wow jesus christ that's it's it, the fact that it came out here with no publicity is kind of a shame i just saw i was like i was looking through the um the listings and i was like what the heck is this and i was like it's like Luis lestrada is still making movies like oh my god i gotta see this and uh i was definitely not disappointed is all i'll say okay yeah i haven't heard of that one so i'll have to check that out and i got a couple others for my list there for my ever-growing list i've got uh, dreams from kurosawa which i have not seen Ooh, and then nice. zardoz i've never seen either so, oh my gosh yeah got a couple to check out let's transition into some kung fu here my friend now obviously you are a big fan of shaw brothers not only did you pick the topic but you did extensive work with arrow on their shaw scope box sets which are like the definitive kung fu box sets as far as i know on the market right now what got you into kung fu films i imagine it was jackie chan i mean it's gotta be yeah 
something like one of his goofy American movies. But um, that kind of uh, interest deepened as I took stuff out from the Queen's Library. And like, I remember vividly going from like, oh, Jackie Chan, the Jackie Chan who did Shanghai Noon is also the Jackie Chan who did Fearless Hyena and New Fist of Fury and these movies that were like very early in his career. And the more I watched of his stuff, the more I was just like, why is this style of action so much more interesting to me than like a lot of the American style of action? And it's like, it was a matter of, of craft and, you know, uh, action filmmaking and choreography, really. Um, a phrase that I'm so excited to see become more common in coverage of action movies because um, especially now when those craft-oriented uh, fields are not as valued in American filmmaking, people are realizing that the thing that they've been missing is like a really well-assembled uh, uh, scene, a really well-choreographed action scene. And uh, the Shaw Brothers films, uh, I, I kept coming to particularly um, over the years, uh, especially uh, starting in college, I remember there was a really good Lincoln Center retrospective of Shaw Brothers films. Uh, and I remember just being kind of blown away by uh, films like New One-Armed Swordsman and uh, uh, Heroes of the of the uh, East. And uh, um, there were a couple others that really just stood out to me. King Boxer. King Boxer, I, I remember uh, vividly seeing that on a big screen. And uh, these movies just kind of were so lush and, and so beautiful uh, that like... It was something that I, 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 I had to see more of. And luckily, we, we've had, we in New York have the New York Asian Film Festival, uh, those programmers also, um, some of whom do the old school Kung Fu Fest. So there's never been um, uh, a better place to, to, to look for that stuff if you know where to look or if you're interested in that stuff. But like, um, it definitely, I think, um, developed with with um, the way that that stuff became popular and more and more prominent in American pop culture, especially after Hero and uh, let's see, uh, uh, Kung Fu Hustle and uh, a number of other movies where uh, you know Donnie Yen. As much as I'm kind of lukewarm on him, like a lot of these these guys um, have had these waves of popularity that have reminded American filmmakers, like the John Wick guys that uh there is such a uh uh not just craft but just real artistry in what a lot of these guys do and um it's so exciting to see that that has led people back to the shaw brothers because uh in a lot of ways the films of uh their filmmakers have continued to influence what people just see as like oh that's a formula it's generic and it's like yeah but don't you want to know how that became established and how it became a thing and where these uh styles come from or or you know are paying homage to it's like it's 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 genuinely heartening to see people going back to a lot of these movies and being like wow this is um still vital and still really uh thrilling to watch yeah i i uh, got into kung fu movies a little bit late i gained a huge appreciation for jackie chan after you know, Rumble in the Bronx and, and stuff like that came out. But I think my real first touch of Kung Fu films, I, well, I had seen, you know, the, the, they would play stuff on TV once in a while and I would catch that once in a while, but it was more for the camp factor of it. You know, I was younger and, and it was the, 
the dubbing and the the cheesiness that drew me to those. But then I saw The Matrix in 99, mm. and that was really what clued me into, oh, wow, like you can really do Kung Fu well. And then a little bit later when Kill Bill 1 and 2 came out, then it was, all right, I need to find out what influenced these and uh, digging back through all the information I could find on the internet to, to find out where all those influences came from led me to stuff like Lady Snowblood and The One-Armed Swordsman and, and all those really amazing films. And then with the advent of, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays, there's just so much stuff you can find out there and just started digging in and digging in. And a lot of those films that I love start with that great Shaw Brothers logo. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's uh, where a, a lot of that love came from. And so I'm excited to talk top five Shaw Brothers films. Simon, you ready to get into this list? Yes, sir. Let's do it. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? Huh? You know what's going to happen? No, no, no. What? You just made the list. This is one of those lists kind of where I'm coming in knowing that my list is going to feel a little bit basic. I don't have a whole lot of deep cuts on this topic. It's one of those where I'm looking to come in to learn. Although I think my number five might be a little less well-known, but clearly I'm not the the expert you are. So we'll see. I'm sure we're going to give people a nice range of, of films to walk away with. Do you think we'll have any crossover like you think we'll have any that match up on our lists i'd be willing to bet there's got to be i imagine anywhere from one to to two items that uh i, I would eat maybe even three items that we, we have in common so um i i wouldn't put it past us uh considering uh some of these movies are revered for a reason so it's uh it's, right it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't be surprising all right well let's get into this my number five i guess this would be my least well-known Shaw Brothers movie, but I just have such a, a soft spot for this. And I, I guess it's probably because of the mood that I was in and the time that I saw it. But I really love 1979's The Boxer from the Temple, directed mm. by John Lama. Have you seen this one before? Yes, for sure. That's a that's a strong one. I wanted to get a little bit of variety on the back half of my list because I realize my numbers two and three are very similar. But I, I really do love kung fu comedies. And like we were talking about Jackie Chan, he's got some classics like the Meals on Wheels and Drunken Master. And I find this one of the more enjoyable Shaw Brothers kung fu comedies. I know online by some it's considered a lower tier Shaw Brothers film, but I had a ton of fun with this. It's uh, It starts with this baby getting left on the steps of a Shaolin monastery, and he ends up being raised by these monks under the name Crazy Kid, and he's trained in a fighting style called Crazy Lohan Fist. And eventually they send him on his way into the world, and he goes into this town, and he ends up fending off some gangsters with his kung fu skills, and so they offer him a job at this restaurant. So he starts working at a vegetarian restaurant, And, uh, of course that pisses off the gangsters and he pisses them off even more when he gives them, he, uh, gives a prostitute shelter and protection who has escaped them. The movie is really lighthearted until the end when he goes after the big bad Wang Chen Hui and, uh, he has to take on a bunch of his staff toting henchmen. And then he and the villain have this really great five minute one-on-one fight scene that features all kinds of flips. Uh, he's using a fan that he has to fend off. 
And there are some moves here that if you're a fan of luchador wrestling, you're going to notice a lot of moves here that may have inspired those wrestlers like Rey Mysterio. Tons of action here. And it starts off kind of goofy. Like there's a uh, fight in a restaurant where he's rolling around on the ground in a ball and people can't hit him or grab him. But when we start to get to that final fight scene, it gets bloody. And I mean, there's a guy who tries to kick him and his leg gets pinned up against a, a pole and our hero snaps his leg in half the wrong way at the knee. I mean, it, it gets brutal, but it is a lot of fun. That is uh, 1979's The Boxer from the Temple at my number five. The cool thing about that movie, and I'm, I'm so glad you bring it up, is because comedies do get short shrift a lot, in, uh, especially in uh, the fact that the, the comedy styles and the, the traditions of the Peking opera and uh, just the sensibility of humor and melodrama and uh, kind of lowbrow prop comedy and wordplay, like some of it um, just isn't the thing of a lot of uh, Westerners, but that movie in particular has a lot going for it, and uh, the um, the stunt directors, if you like that one, they did they collaborated on um, Fearless Hyena Two, the Jackie Chan film, which uh, is, oh yeah, it's not as good as the first one, but um, that's not worthy. Better still is a movie I think they did like either the same year or the year before uh, this one, uh, so nineteen seventy nine or seventy eight. Um, that's Five Super Fighters, which is um, also included in uh, Shaw Scope, I want to say Volume 2. And uh, there's also uh, another Shaw Brothers film that they worked on that I really like. Uh, the stunt coordinators, uh, or directors, I should say. Those guys also worked on Bloody Parrot, which is a crazy kind of mix of action and like grisly Agatha Christie style mystery uh and uh it's it's uh wonderful like if you like stuff like portraying crystal and uh um not corpse mania so much but like curse of evil just movies that have like that that they kind of tip over into horror but they're really just like uh a really crazy uh and lurid kind of agatha christie type mystery uh you're gonna really like bloody parrot okay i haven't heard of that one i'm gonna put that one on my list there I know from one of my other picks that I'm probably going to love it. Um, so, yeah, my number five was The Boxer from the Temple from 1979. What do you have at your number five? Well, I I had uh, trouble narrowing it down to one film by this director, <laughs> but I really love uh, The Boxer's Omen um, and the films of the director, uh, Chi Hung Kui, who I've written about for Fangoria. Uh, I've introduced uh, a screening of this movie in Bristol recently. And uh, I think a lot about The Boxer's Omen, I think, so I, I went with that. But um, it's this uh, final horror movie by uh, Quay, who is this really interesting but really conflicted kind of um, uh, journeyman filmmaker who did films in all kinds of genres, uh, including, uh, you know, crime, thriller, drama uh, type films like Big Brother Chang and uh, The Tea House. Uh, a number of horror movies, uh, which range in tone from comedies like uh, Hex After Hex and Hex versus, I think it's Ghosts is the title, but um, to just uh, more social realist oriented films like Ghost Eyes, um, Spirit of the Raped, which has a terrible title, but is actually really good. Um, 
he's he did a lot and like all of his movies have something of his spirit of of uh kind of cynicism and interest in uh what's going on in then contemporary hong kong and the boxer's omen was really like his way of um uh really putting a, a capper on his uh filmmaking career like he really shot the works with this one is the way i'd put it because while he didn't actually believe in the supernatural elements or really religion because i believe he was an atheist um this was like um his way of showing that he could still um cater to contemporary audiences taste for what he called gimmicks um stuff that he knew would sell the audience and you know fantasy elements were something that he increasingly got into but it wasn't because he particularly liked them or believed in them. It was just because he knew that that was like uh, trendy. And the thing of it is, if you watch the Boxer's Omen knowing that, you could never tell. The Boxer's Omen is a really full-throated um, uh, horror movie that is just uh, a, an assault of like crazy, uh, you know, spellcasting duels, goopy special effects, uh, just a lot of just like dazzling um create just uh, uh wild nightmare imagery and um if you see it with an audience especially on a big screen you'll have the best effect but honestly um i would say start there and then try other movies by that director because his versatility and his uh uh the the, the general high quality of his films is is pretty consistent uh you know stuff like every everything from the the um uh, the Wuxia, the very bitter Wuxia film, uh, Killer Constable, um, which is also basically like a, a police drama set in, uh, you know, uh, like a, as a costume drama. There's uh, Corpse Mania, uh, Killer Snakes, which are these kind of scuzzy, almost giallo-like uh, mystery films. And then there's even the really good juvenile delinquent movies that he did, like Killers on Wheels and... Uh, uh, the delinquent, which I I think t the delinquent is, is terrific. So he he has a very rich uh, body of work, but definitely start with the Boxer's Omen because that movie is a is a real knockout. Well, I'm glad that you had this on your list because this is on my list as well, and it's at my number four. So we could talk about this at the same time here. I I really don't have much to add to what you said, although I will say that when people think about the Shaw Brothers studio, most of the time they think about Kung Fu films, but there were plenty of other genres that they developed and horror was one of them. This is one of those films that I saw because I love those nonsensical kind of crazy films that make your brain bleed. Yeah. <laughs> and this is certainly one of those. This is like if Fulci was making films for the Shaw Brothers studio in the early 80s. I mean, I know, I know that you didn't describe the plot, and it's kind of tough to describe the plot because it's so weird and wild, but it's basically, uh, there's a boxer who's paralyzed after he, like, the boxer wins the fight, but then he is cheap-shotted after the match, and he's paralyzed, so his brother goes to Thailand to try and avenge him, and he links up with a, a couple of monks who and then there's evil there's an evil wizard who has killed the monk's leader as he was about to achieve immortality and it turns out that the monk whose spirit keeps showing up for the boxer and the boxer were twins in a past life so they have this connection and if he doesn't fight this evil wizard and beat him then he has to he'll die like he has to save his own life 
And it's just this fever dream of weirdness. There's a corpse that's sewn into a dead alligator that's then covered in maggots, but then they exhume it and she is nude and completely completely alive. She has detachable hands that fly around. There's a really kind of harrowing caterpillar scene. Oh, God, yeah. Demon bats. Uh, And then, I mean, there's a scene at the end where somebody gets turned inside out. It's just an absolutely gonzo movie. And yeah, I was reading about the director, too, because it's the only film that I've seen of his. And he retired from filmmaking in 1984 to come to the United States and open up a pizza place. Yeah, I've always been sad by the fact that I was never able to go to that pizza shop because I, uh, oh, man, I would have loved to have just been like, just get a slice and be like, so you directed Killer Constable. What's that like? <laughs> or just like, Killer Snakes. When you had the snake go up the the, the indelicate place of uh, the lady. How'd that, how'd that go? Like, just, just I don't know. I, I, I ah, such regrets. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. So Boxer Zoman was your number five. It was also my number four. So we've matched up on one here. Uh, Simon, what do you have at number four? Well, I wanted to, to, to highlight uh, the work of both the great choreographer, filmmaker, Lau Kar Lung, and his, uh, for a while, collabor- regular collaborator, Chang Che. So this is a movie by Lau Kar Lung, the choreographer, uh, ingenious choreographer, and it's Dirty Ho. Um, Dirty Ho is a comedy about uh, where Gordon Liu plays a con man who... Uh, is selling antiques and uh it's it's a series where he basically uh forces (laughs) he forces this guy to become his apprentice and that guy's played by uh yu wong uh the the title uh character and they get into these series of uh increasingly uh convoluted um schemes to ferret out who is trying to uh to kill gordon Liu's character and uh it eventually or really very quickly becomes clear that the movie's plot isn't as material or important as the really just joyful action choreography and interplay between the characters where they're constantly like making it clear that like there's an almost sticky level of like playing to the cheap seats but like they're also just like this delightful uh buddy team um where they they just basically go through these events uh doing these elaborate uh uh fight routines and it's uh it's so much fun to watch this movie because it has uh the spirit of uh the director Lau Kar Lung in the sense that this was a guy that really took martial arts seriously and took filmmaking as a much lesser matter um, he, he thought that filmmaking was just a great way to uh, make and honor the spirit of martial arts by making it more popular and by making it more visible and, and expressing it. And he, he did a number of comedies, um, including like uh, Shaolin Mantis and, uh, you know, uh, Executioners of Shaolin has a lot of humor in it, which you wouldn't expect from a movie with that title. And... Um, there's basically I, I chose Dirty Ho because it is uh, one of the most consistently up 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 of his comedies. It's the comedy that like when I've showed it to people, like I, I helped program a Shaw Brothers program 
um, at the IFC Center years ago. And uh, Dirty Ho, um, it kills because it has like the 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 hyper energy of a comic strip. But uh, even if you don't normally respond to uh, this kind of humor, this kind of very um, full-throated kind of humor, uh, I've seen people still really respond to Dirty Ho, and uh, I think that this is great because it shows you that there was a lot of, um, uh, not conflict necessarily, but there was definitely a sense that Lau Carlong knew that like filmmaking was essentially on some level, like, just a way to sell this thing. It was, it was, uh, you know, I don't know if he would go so far as to call it, like, uh, a con, but, like, the fact that the characters are con men and are just, like, kind of breezing their way through life while, like, showing off their moves, uh, like, uh, in a series of, like, impromptu exhibitionist kind of one-upsmanship-type oriented uh, routines, these things uh, do show you that, like, he... Um, was not so reverent of filmmaking. The fact that he was still a great action filmmaker and choreographer shows you that, like, it, it's even more a movie like this is even more miraculous because it's like it's it's a it's a master filmmaker saying like, "What this whole thing? Sure, I can do it." And he just tosses off, you know, a movie that's still inspiring because you're just like, "How did he do? That? Like, how is he moving on action so seamlessly? And how is he like getting such strong performances?" And, like, look at all the involved moves, like, how many shot, uh, movements the actors are doing per shot. It's, it's kind of inspiring. And, and I think if you're, if you're really interested in the filmmaker, uh, or Lau Kar Long's work and what makes him special, Dirty Ho is a really good showcase for that. This one is on the Arrow Shot Scope Volume 1, which you worked on, and I have not yet gotten a chance to check it out. So I need to, I need to make this. I think it's on the same disc with Heroes of the East. I mm-hmm. need to, just spend the time and watch both of these films. I highly rec. I think you'll get a big kick out of it. It sounds a lot like in tone, like my boxer from the temple pick. So I'm now I'm really looking forward to it. Okay. My number three is from 1979. You already mentioned Chang Che. Uh, this is one of two Chang Che films on my list. The kid with the golden arm. Nice. This stars the five deadly venoms crew, which I know you're uh, very familiar with because you did the commentary for five deadly venoms. On, yeah. It was on the shots. Shot set. Yeah. I have no idea how this film has not yet been made into a video game because it would make a perfect video game. <laughs> Just the way the characters are introduced and stuff. But uh, the the short of it is that the government asks uh, a couple of guys, one of them being a guy named Iron Feet, to escort a cargo of gold to uh, a famine-stricken area. And there's a vicious gang that announces their intention to hijack it by killing one of Yang's employees. The way that they introduce the characters, it's like, here's the fifth in charge, here's the fourth in charge, here's the third in charge, and it goes all the way up to the big boss, and they basically have to fight them in that sequence. It really is like a video game. And like we see in a lot of these movies, the characters are all really interesting, and they they all have their own special thing. So Golden Arms, he's the top boss. His arms are as hard as gold and he you could swing at his arms with a sword and it's not going to it's not going to do anything to him. 
Then at number two, you have Silver Spear, and he's got, not only is he really great with his spear, but his spear can do all kinds of tricks, like it can extend however long he needs it to. And then you have Iron Robe at number three. He also carries a bladed fan, but his thing is his impenetrable robe, so you can hit his robe with a sword and nothing's going to happen to it. And then at number four, you have Brass Head, who has this really interesting helmet, and his whole fight style is around headbutts, his lethal headbutts. Of course, with kung fu movies, there are always great fight scenes, and the end fight scene between the constable and Golden Arms is good, but I think the better fight scene is probably, there's two guys named Long Axe and Short Axe, and they go up against Silver Spear, and it's a really, really good fight. There's a lot going on in this film. The gang carves their name into somebody's back, you get a great impalement. There's also a really great twist at the end that I did not see coming. Most of the time, these don't have real surprising endings, but this one had a great twist. And I'll just I'll end my little spiel with the, one of the great quotes of kung fu films that I've seen. You can take the gold now. I'm gonna go get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that line. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Kid with the Golden Arm from 1979 is my number three. That's a solid choice because of the Venom mob films. Um, Kid with the Golden Arm I've seen get like the most consistent respect. I've seen a little bit of, uh, in recent years, uh, falling in stature of the five Venoms because um, some people just don't like the mystery plot of that movie as much. But Kid with the Golden Arm is like a much more straightforward narrative. Um, the action is uh, really just really uniformly strong. And uh, I think of the Shaw Brothers... Uh, of the Venom Mob films that people have uh, really taken to and I've seen get the, the most consistently positive responses uh, is that and uh, Crippled Avengers. Those two really get uh, 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 people every time. And uh, I'm so glad to hear you, you mention uh, Kid with Golden Arm because I have a very soft spot for that one. That one is like... Um, I, I don't know if I could choose just one Venom movie, but like that is definitely one of my top three, you know? Yeah, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Uh, I also chose uh, a Chang Che film, and I went with uh, one that he did work with Lao Kar Wong on because, um, well, these guys work together for a while, and it becomes a very tempting uh, choice to favor Lao Kar Wong over Chang Che because uh, Lao was a choreographer. And he also didn't have, uh, you know, a very bad temperament. And he, he, he was, he's easier to like, in other words. And uh, he has yeah. the, the, the authenticity of, of being from the martial arts background. And Chang Che was just uh, a journeyman filmmaker who made uh, a crazy high output of anywhere from like three to eight movies a year. And um this is uh, one of his classics, I think, and a very formative one uh, from, I think, 1967. It's The One-Armed Swordsman, um, which stars a baby-faced uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, who, uh, as the uh, orphaned swordsman who uh, is raised by this very uh, well-respected uh, teacher martial arts teacher and he gets kind of like ostracized by his teacher's uh children who are like how would you give this this uh nobody with no status whatsoever 
uh, the time of day. So they single him out and they cut off his arm uh, after challenging him. And uh, he, you know, goes away, obviously, uh, and uh, recuperates and figures out like a style of fighting uh, that favors uh, one arm. And uh, it's kind of a good showcase, this movie, uh, for Chang's very uh, forceful and unapologetic melodrama because he's such a he's such a good melodramatic filmmaker. The fights in this movie are really good, but like what you're here for is really the emotional heartbreak and the emotional involvement that goes into that because the plot is what would become kind of formulaic, which is basically uh, his former master gets challenged by a rival school that doesn't play fair. They create these like sword grabbing uh, weapons and they take out all of uh, his former master's students, his kids, and it's up to Jimmy Wang Yu to, to rescue them with his unconventional uh, fighting style. And uh, it's very true to, to, to Chang uh, and his style. He spends a lot of time building up the bad guys in One-Armed Swordsman to the point where you, you sort of get the sense of, of, of doom uh, before Jimmy Wang Yu fights. Um, he's kind of the, the hero in the sense that like he, he parts the, 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 the moody clouds of this movie but for a while, there's a lot of stuff that, like, uh, it's kind of, uh, I, I think of a lot of Anthony Mann's westerns, these post-war westerns, where they have this psychological realism and uh, really just a sense of, of, of doom and, and, and fatalism that, like, uh, as, we, as we get into some of the other picks, I think you'll see was something that became more and more popular and uh, standard for both the filmmaker and also a lot of the the Shaw brothers signature movies where it's basically like uh this was basically the the Shaw brothers answer to the to England's angry young man you know the the character who was like he he's just fed up with how unfair the world is and how everything seems to conspire against him and even if you are a good person uh it doesn't really matter it's just that in the martial arts context it's like and you do it anyway because there's nothing else you can do except fight for what you know is right. And, uh, it's still sort of like the, uh, um, this, this cannot archetypal figure that Jimmy Wang, you plays of this romantic, uh, rejected loner figure who still nevertheless makes good. And, uh, I think for all the, the movies that it inspired, including a number of, uh, semi, uh, sequels and follow up official follow-ups, there were a ton of ripoffs that show you how um, uh, well-regarded and how essential One-Armed Swordsman is in not only the Shaw Brothers canon, but in, in martial arts, uh, in terms of, uh, especially in terms of its melodrama. I'm glad that uh, Jimmy Wang Yu made our list because his, his uh, output with Shaw was not real great, right? He, he had One-Armed Swordsman, and then once he became a star, he, he left Shaw Brothers for golden harvest right you got it uh he, he basically he did one armed swordsman and he wanted to to do different style of fighting as well as to direct and he exerted uh, a lot of pressure on on the shaws uh because like basically he was a big star and he was like well why aren't i able to do more with that and the shaw brothers like because you're a star and why don't you stick to what you do 
and make more swordsman movies. Uh, and he pushed back and he got to do uh, uh, The Hammer of God, also known as The Chinese Boxer. And that was uh, a really big hit, but he couldn't, you know, the Shaw Brothers were still just like, that's great, Jimmy, go back to work. And he was like, no, <laughs> I'm leaving. And he got into a big legal mess because of that, because he, you know, broke his contract and uh, the Shaw Brothers were not kind to him for that. And uh, But he fled to, to Taiwan to work with Raymond Chow at Golden Harvest because that was, uh, to him, he was like, well, that, that'll make, let, give me even more status and I can continue being a, a director as well, like he w- was on The Chinese Boxer. And uh, his movies are still of interest. I mean, I know he's got a big champion in Quentin Tarantino. And uh, it's, uh, I think One-Armed Swordsman is, uh, I, I I would give it the slight edge over even stuff like uh, Hammer of God or One-Armed uh, Boxer, which uh, I did the liner notes for, for Arrow. But um, I love those movies, but um, there's a lot more formal control and tonal control in One-Armed Swordsman. Um, both of those uh, other films uh both the Chinese boxer and the one arm boxer, those are very uh, different. And uh, I think if you want to, if you're going to make an essential top five, you got to have something like one armed swordsman, just because it features the best of uh, a lot of the people involved, including Chang and uh, uh, Wang Yu. All right. That's the one armed swordsman from 1967. A great place to start for really any, any type of Hong Kong film, but definitely a, Cool to see Jimmy Wang Yu get his start. My number two is my second Chang Che film on my list. In terms of entertainment value, it is right up there with with really the most entertaining movies ever made. And it is Five Elements Ninjas from 1982, also sometimes known in video stores in the U.S. as Chinese Super Ninjas. This one is just so much fun. It starts out with like wall-to-wall action for 30 minutes we get this tournament between two rival dojos and one of those rival dojos is led by a guy named zhang whose guys all wear white and they win really easily the last guy they face is this japanese samurai he's kind of like a guest entrant and when he's defeated he performs seppuku but first he tosses zhang a ring and tells him when you see another ring like this it's going to mean that, that there's a great challenge coming. And by the way, the ring that he tosses Zhang is poisoned, but the effect that poison has is that he can't perform Kung Fu for uh, a few months. Sure enough, like shortly after that, they're delivered a letter with a ring attached to it, and it is a challenge from the Five Elements Ninjas. And so these guys bar the dojo up, and then they send a bunch of guys out to see if they can get rid of these Five Elements Ninjas, and they are dispatched easily. And each element, by the way, is really fun. So there's gold, wood, water, fire, and earth. And the guys who are the gold element, they have these golden hats. They double as shields. They also launch knives. And the reflective golden surfaces of the hat blinds their foes. And then you have the wood ninjas. They hide in trees and they blend in like with tree costumes. (laughs) I'll talk about one of their fight scenes with the wood guys here in a second. Uh, Then there's water ninjas, and these ninjas use reeds to breathe and swim underwater. And then you have the fire ninjas. They use smoke flares to blind their enemies. And then finally, you have the earth ninjas who come up from underground. They shoot the spears up through the ground uh, into their opponent's legs. 
the the plot basically is after that tournament, a young martial artist, he wants to get revenge on the ninjas who killed his brothers and his teacher. So he finds a new teacher and they go after these five element ninjas. And they, of course, need to deal with each ninja differently using interesting weapons and tactics. It's it's a really violent movie. You'll see this, especially when they fight the the wood guys. They have to use these scythes chained to their arms and four of our heroes they they wrap a scythe around each limb and then they pull the guy apart (laughs) like all his legs and arms just kind of pop off it's uh, intestines are spilled in here another guy is cut in half it's got a great climax and uh cheng che said that sam peckinpah was one of his western influences and there is no better showcase for that than the five elements ninjas. Oh, I really, really love this movie. I think it's super entertaining from 1982. That's my number two. I'm so glad you chose that one because I also love it. And um, I also think that it's important to, to kind of push back against the common narrative about how like only the, the mid sixties, or even early 70s uh, Shaw Brothers films, especially by Chang, are worthwhile. Uh, he he was kind of, uh, regardless of whether he was chasing uh, trends that he himself established or, you know, blazing a, a trail forward, he was still kind of uh, terrific. And, you know, there's nothing he's doing in uh, uh, Five Element Ninjas that he hasn't done before. But um, the fact that it's just so relentless and so colorful and um, really genuinely surreal at times. Um, all the violence uh, amped up as it is, uh, it just really works. It feels like a um, the kind of movie that, like, in some ways is very much the epitome of um, how he's kind of trying to... Uh, remind audiences of of his style and and you know just repeating what worked before except more and more hyper stylized and it still works like a treat i mean i think that movie is uh i I remember seeing it at the metrograph uh projected and uh man oh nice that movie plays that movie plays super well and it's it's just it's a uh, it's it's wonderful every time I see it, regardless of if I'm at home or on on a big screen. It's just like wow, um, the guy did not slow down, you know. <laughs> to see any of these films on our list with an audience would be an amazing experience. I've never gotten to see any of the films on my list with a crowd, but I would love to at some point. Oh, it's great, and uh, I I resist very much the idea that like you know laughter in the audience is uh, a total mood killer. It can be sometimes a little uh, distracting, but having shown some of these movies at midnight, uh, including like Super Inframan and uh, uh, Mighty Peking Man even, um, you know, you have to allow for people to have their responses and the movie is still going to be what it is. And uh, uh, I, I think my favorite parts of, of programming those movies is the to hear over here on the way out audience response. Like I, I, I saw a couple of couples at some of these screenings and one of them after Super Inframan was like, oh, well, it's like, that was, that was, that was wild. And it's like, it's like, uh, I've seen Wilder. And it's like, it was pretty wild. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it was great. It was just like, you can't, you can't beat that, that kind of uh, response because like, or there was a couple who I think they saw, they were coming out of Five Venoms and uh, the, 
the girl turns to the guy and she says, it's like, so good. So, so good. I'm like, we did it. We nailed it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sure that it takes a second for some people to like settle in with the vibe of a movie. But after 10 minutes, I'm sure like a lot of that laughter goes away and they just kind of get they soak that story in and, and it just kind of falls away, you know, for sure. And uh, I love the fact that like there is this one guy who just like he showed up every uh, Friday night to these these Shaw Brothers films at midnight. And uh, he was always like very loud and talking back. But like when the movie's working all I could hear from him was just, oh, shit, you know, just like, just, he, just <laughs> yeah. he got into it. And it was just like, I can't fault him for like, you know, a little trap. Like, just like, come on now. You gotta, you gotta um, be a, either an adult about it or just enjoy, you know, what's going on. And uh, it was, it was great to see people kind of, uh, like you said, just really get into the movie. When you watch these films, do you prefer the English dub or do you prefer the original language tracks? Um, I definitely prefer the original language tracks if I can get it, but the unfortunate part is, uh, there's still, especially on streaming, a predominance of the English dub. So you kind of have to, uh, if not accept that as a reality and make peace with that. Uh, it, it, it definitely, if you, if you watch these movies, uh, uh, growing up, you, you just kind of are used to it. Like, uh, uh, there are a lot of Jackie Chan films that I've only seen in the uh, the dub form, and I love those movies, like Fearless Hyena. Like, God, I can I can recall all the cheesy uh, uh, intonations of these these terrible voice actors, and it's just such a shame because the movie's uh, uh, a treat. But then all I can think of is these guys going Chen Peng Feng, I'm here to kill you. <laughs> no, grandfather, no. It's like it's just. Uh, it's it's hard to get out of your head. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely becomes part of your um it, it gets folded into your uh affection for the movie. So I can't really I can't really criticize it too harshly, you know. Yeah, I watch I mean ninety nine percent of foreign movies I watch with the original language tracks, but for some reason with kung fu films, I really I do enjoy the the English dubs. No, I, I think it just adds a level of charm to them. I have seen some with the original language tracks, but I still, for some reason, prefer the English dubs on, on old Kung Fu films. No, I totally I totally can appreciate that. Okay, uh, what are we up to? Number two for you. All right, I, I chose King Boxer, uh, or Five Fingers of Death, uh, because King Boxer, uh, people forget that like before Bruce Lee, uh, King Boxer was like, the big crossover hit in America. It was the movie that got like the New York Times and a couple other uh, Western outlets to be like, wow, is, is Kung Fu a genre? Is it like a thing is, that we need to take seriously? Because like it was a hit. And uh, I think with good reason, um, even if you were to ignore the, uh, the release, like what, how it, it, it reached the American audience, the movie itself is, um, it definitely extends the logic of the melodrama in One-Armed Swordsman, because it's also about a crippled fighter. Uh, I should note that King Boxer is 1972, so this is like five years after One-Armed Swordsman. And crippled fighters were kind of a thing, uh, especially because of Wang Yu's uh, uh, one-armed uh, boxer, as well as the Chinese boxer. So it's like th there, were, there were conventions by the point that King Boxer comes out but you get this plot about um, 
this fighter who uh, is a very virtuous character. Uh, he's played by uh, Lovia, and um, he just has this this trajectory of like it seems very straightforward. You know, he's he's uh, training. He has a good life with his master and married and have a relationship with his daughter uh the master's daughter and like everything just seems to conspire against him and he just keeps losing loved ones against these like vicious antagonists and he kind of has to like persevere and dig deeper and develop this like fighting technique that is eventually becomes unstoppable where his literally his palms glow and he's able to like make people like flop crash into like brick walls and he's just like this unstoppable uh force and he unfortunately needs to be because like even with all that like his uh his master his girlfriend like everything there's just like this real tragic element to the story where like he just keeps going and even as goal oriented as the narrative is where he's eventually got to fight in this tournament um this is a movie that's very much like one-armed swordsman in that it's like uh about a tragic figure uh whereas with king boxer i think it's even more intense and even more uh affecting because it doesn't matter how good this guy is it doesn't matter how right he is he just people it just doesn't work out for him and it's it's almost it reminds me in some ways of when i when i was a kid and i was reading and falling in love with like spider-man comics where you would have this hero who just, like, it wasn't just that he was an everyday hero, it was the fact that, like, he could never hold on to what he loved and what, like, made him happy. Like, you know, losing all the the various girlfriends in Peter Parker's life, um, not being able to provide as much money for his family, or, you know, just, like, all all the hardships that he has to do eventually became the character to me. And I think King Boxer will always remain a classic because uh it puts you through the fucking ringer every time i've seen this like i don't know how many times and every time i'm just i get caught up in the fact that like um it's it's uh it's really a better chang che film and it wasn't even made by him this was made by this korean filmmaker who didn't do too many uh sharp brothers films his name was uh chang hua jiang and um he, he was he kind of uh entrenched a lot of the the formulaic stuff that as we now know it uh in this movie and he crystallized really this form into i think a some degree of perfection with king boxer king boxer is just i don't know like it's it's one of those classics that like every time you think it's like well it can't be that good and then you watch it like no no it's that good it's it, it really is that good yeah this is a great choice this is the first disc in that arrow box set and if you need any other uh, recommendation on this, so I cracked this set open. This is the first one that I watched and I toss it in. And of course I got the English dub on and my wife walked into the room and my wife's not a fan of old school Kung Fu films. She's really not a fan of fight or action films in general. And she's like, what are you watching? I'm like, King Boxer. It's, it's the first disc in the set. And she's just like, you know, kind of ignoring it. (laughs) And she gets on the couch. She's doing work on her laptop. And then slowly but surely, I can see her kind of paying attention more to King Boxer, less to her work until I see. And I'm not commenting, but I see out of the corner of my eye, like the laptop screen just kind of goes dark from inactivity. She was into King Boxer. Yes. (laughs) So that's that's a good uh, a good endorsement for King Boxer right there. My wife. My wife sat through the second half of that movie, and she, I think she enjoyed it. 
Nice. That's I, I love hearing that because honestly, um, these movies they tend to be um, it, it's it's assumed that you have to love action uh, or you know have to be invested in this stuff. And unfortunately, I see the logic in it. But King Boxer and a lot of these movies, like their appeal is just such that like if you put them in front of people, like even if it's not necessarily their thing, they're gonna be impressed. It's these are these movies hold up super well. And uh, I'm so happy to, to hear that about uh, this one in particular. Well, we've matched up on one, but no Kung Fu movies. We've matched up on a horror pick here. Uh, so going into our number one, this is going to be interesting. I have no idea what you've got at number one. My number one, I just saw recently. I saw it maybe like three months back for the first time and absolutely loved this movie. It's a tragic story on screen. It's also a tragic story off screen. It is 1984's Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, oh, yeah. also known as Invincible Pole Fighter, directed by Lau Kar Lung. This is extremely entertaining, and it's got one of the best climaxes I have ever seen in any movie. Uh, it starts off with the massacre of the Yip family, and it's a hardcore, it's a brutal scene. This father and four of his sons are killed, while the fifth and sixth sons manage to escape. The sixth one goes home, but he's really traumatized by everything he saw. And the fifth son goes to this monastery, played by he's played by Gordon Liu in an amazing role. He goes to seek refuge in this monastery in the mountains, but the monks don't consider him calm enough to be a Buddhist monk. But he stays there, and he demands that they train him he shaves his head he brands his head like he burns his head to prove that he he wants to be trained and eventually he's just like you need to train me i'm gonna burn this place to the ground and the monks they're really passive monks they do have a fighting style that uses poles in order to rip the teeth out of wolves and uh that's that's kind of like their style so he learns to control his anger. He is trained by these monks until he finds out that the same people have now kidnapped his sister. So he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I, I got to take these guys out. So he leaves. And the final battle in this film is just, it's breathtaking. He and his sister are taken on the Mongols and the monks show up. And this is like one of the coolest moments in film history because he's like, why are you breaking your oath not to kill? And they say, we're not. We're not killing anybody. We're defanging wolves. It is as teeth shattering <laughs> as a climax gets. Uh, that's all I will say because I really think people need to watch this. And Arrow put out a fantastic Blu-ray set on this. So don't walk, run to get this set. Unfortunately, Alex, uh, Alexander Fusheng died in a car accident before the filming was finished. So they had to rewrite the script, like the back half of the script after his death. So that's why his character does not appear in the final showdown. Instead, his his sister is the partner in the final showdown. Yeah, so really tragic on screen, really tragic off screen, but just a wildly entertaining movie. Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, you got to see it. Even if you don't like fight films, it is it's just an amazing movie overall. I'm so glad you chose that one too, because it's... Uh... I was thinking about with when I chose Dirty Ho, it's like, do I, uh, which, which of Lao's films do I, I highlight? And, uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, uh, we also showed that with, uh, the Shaw Brothers series I did. And, uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's great. It's basically, 
it's also like of the films that Lau did without Chang, it's the most that feels like as bad as their breakup was basically after I think it was 72 when they were working on Marco Polo. Um, this is a movie that feels like on some level Lau by this point in 84 had hopefully made peace with the fact that there was stuff that Chang brought to the table and it's like his richest melodrama, especially when you consider the fact that this is like, I want to say like six years after, uh, Lau worked with Gordon Liu, the star of Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, on uh, the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. And those movies set their own template to the point where they worked together on two sequels that were increasingly uh, riffing on what became the formula that that first 36th Chamber of Shaolin established, where you have a character who, retreating from persecution, uh, trains in... And becomes like a, a, a real dedicated student of uh, martial arts and uses that knowledge to right wrongs. And that wasn't exactly new or innovative to the 36 Chamber of Shaolin movies. That predates that even to the films that he did with Chang on um, uh, the Shaolin Temporal Cycle films before that. And uh, at the same time, there's no way that when you get to eight diagram pole fighter you have a filmmaker who isn't aware of the fact that like he's got to change things and keep you know making something that if, if just for himself doesn't feel like it's just marge's chanel suit you know reworking endlessly to make it something new and with eight diagram pole fighter he did that he made a character and he made a story that was really emotionally arresting and heartbreaking and full of like uh, you know, a story that's also about like the horrors of war and about processing trauma and, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a really rich and, and, and thrilling movie. So I'm, I'm very happy that you chose eight dry grand pole fighter. Well, it doesn't sound like we're going to match up on our number ones. Simon Abrams, what do you have, uh, on the top of your list? Okay. Here's where I get kind of boring just because it's like, I feel like this is a very normy kind of answer, but I got to go with come drink with me the uh, 1966 King Who film, uh, because it's, if not only just for the way that it set a template and set like uh, a standard by which the filmmaker himself continued to innovate, uh, even as recently as the year after when he moved away from the Shaw Brothers, but it just, it kicks ass, so much ass. And it's just, come drink with me. Basically it follows, uh, a very involved uh, plot where um, uh, Pei Pei Chang, who was uh, a big breakout star because of this, plays a character named Golden Swallow, who uh, she uh, she stumbles upon this plot to uh, it was a kidnapping plot, but basically the, there's this uh, there's this involved series of uh, you know characters where she's chasing after them, and then they wind up chasing after her. And then she gets involved with this, like, uh, the singer played by uh, Yue Hua. And uh, he has a group of children that he looks after, but he's also a drunk. And it's it's basically a series of, of characters who are converging on a single location and wind up, you know, guessing after each other and their, their, their motives. And it became um, the sort of movie that King Hu would continually either reinvent and stuff like the classic dragon in from 
uh, the year later in 1967 after Shaw Brothers. Um, but then later it would just be like the kind of story that he would go to in his uh, Taiwanese productions where it would just be like the story is one thing, almost like a ghost story. And then it turns out to be about the political intrigue and about how like stories are made up of intersecting and uh, interrupting storylines. And uh, Come Drink With Me not only has a great sense of uh, playful action, uh, it has the kind of story that gets really involving because it seems super simple. And then all these characters just come together and just kind of their interests overlap each other. And you eventually realize it's like, um, I don't, I don't really, I, I don't ever really care about the story of Come Drink With Me. I just care about like watching these, these charismatic figures like Pei Pei Cheng, who this was her big breakout role, just kind of do their thing and just like make me want to follow them around until like they get railroaded by, you know, the story where you find out, oh wait, Drunken Cat, the Yue Hua character, he's actually also a main character and someone from his past is going to show up about an hour in or so, uh, played by Yuang Chi Heng, who is this uh, killer who poses as an abbot. And uh, it's just all this stuff that just comes together. And in a much lesser hand, you'd be like, oh, this is too busy. This is this is too much. It's it's too hard to follow. But like, Come Drink With Me is like a great gateway into martial arts uh, cinema for a reason, because it is... Uh, it's like this really deceptively simple looking story uh, or setup for a story that quickly becomes um, more about the telling of the story than the actual story itself. It's like one thing that I, I always think about in terms of comedy that I love is a good shaggy dog story where it's just like leading you around by the nose and the details get increasingly confusing. And then you realize like they got you so involved that you're just like, wait a minute, it doesn't really matter where this goes, does it? And uh, Come Drink With Me is kind of a classic um, because it has everything that you want from a martial arts story. Uh, colorful characters, uh, a, a leisurely sense of, of um, pacing, but also just like deeply involved and charming um, performers at the top of their, their game. And uh, I, I I have trouble describing it beyond that because even though I just rewatched it the other day, it's like none of the stuff that involves like, um, you know, character development or just like thematic development. It's like, no, 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 this is just a rollicking good time. This is a movie that like you just watch and let it kind of wash over you and enjoy because it's, it's, a, it's essentially like being told a tall tale by someone who throughout is just telling you if only through characters like drunken cat who's also like a con man type character who's you know he drinks a lot and he has kids who you know act on his behalf to get him more booze like he's telling you like it's like don't trust me i'm not i'm not a trustworthy per filmmaker or storyteller but isn't that kind of pleasurable itself to be just kind of led around and be given this this uh um the joy of of a story that just is uh for pure ornament sake seeming uh and uh it's king who is a is a master at this sort of uh uh yarn and uh it's why this film which was a big influence on crouching tiger hidden dragon um also inspired a sequel um also directed by chang che and starring uh pepe chang called golden swallow 
and uh that one's also worth seeking out um but uh it's 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 just the kind of movie that like if you were to try to like distill what you could do with a shaw brothers production come drink with me is uh a pretty excellent uh starting point and and uh in some ways uh, uh probably i would say the highest uh highlight of this uh late 60s period all right come drink with me that is immediately shot up to the top of my need to watch pile i know arrow put out a really great blu-ray of that i just haven't picked it up yet so i guess i need to i need to pull the trigger on that one for sure okay simon abrams man we we had so many great recommendations for people we only matched up on one uh let's go ahead and recap our lists for the listeners i will go first my number five was the boxer from the temple from 1979 my number four was the boxer's omen from 1983 my number three was Kid with the Golden Arm from 1979. My number two was Five Elements Ninjas from 1982. And my number one was The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter from 1984. I got uh, at my number five, The Boxer's Omen. Then number four is Dirty Ho. Three is One-Armed Swordsman. Uh, two is King Boxer. And number one for me is Come Drink With Me. Did you have any honorable mentions? Any that kind of just were under the the cut maybe like number six or seven that you just couldn't fit in there that we haven't mentioned yet oh for sure uh gosh let me think i was just thinking of whether i should recommend stuff like uh the seeding of a ghost which was uh this black magic movie uh from the uh i'm trying to think if it was like early 80s yeah i think it was or no sorry it was late 70s i think actually sorry i always get that confused it, it was a movie that like it was oh no sorry it was 83 um 1983 black magic movie uh it follows like what became a fairly common trope at that time of like uh somebody gets cursed while on a trip to thailand which uh of course t- plays into these very xenophobic fears of like uh uh people immigrating to hong kong and making life more difficult for hong kongers but uh Mm. the movie is still just this like white hot blast of of just really supernatural scuzziness and uh it's it's kind of riveting each time i rewatch it i'm just like this is even better than i remember and um (laughs) as far as action though and comedy like um there's so many rich uh uh veins for the various big filmmakers but um i really like um uh i'm trying to think which which just to to give a a good example um the shaolin temple films you should definitely try uh the first uh five shaolin masters would be probably my recommendation um the some of the fusheng stuff like heroes 2 um well worth seeking out there's also just like a really short which it it is a short uh film called um uh it's just like an exhibition film i'm trying to think what it was called it was like it played before certain movies i have to tell you later oh my young auntie you gotta you gotta have uh another loud car long in there my young auntie is terrific Mm -hmm. from 1981 really good comedy about um you know what people presume is a country bumpkin who moves in with a bunch of uh hip young men and she winds up schooling all of them um 
<laughs> legendary weapons of China and weapons of the East are both terrific. Um, I mean, it's really just one of those the catalogs that like you just dig into, you're bound to find something that leads you from one thing to the next. And I think that's one of the main pleasures. So I would highly recommend starting with the stuff that we we've already, you know, thrown out there and, and uh, going from there because uh, there's just so much there. And, and one thing really does lead to another. I think when you mentioned seating of the ghost, I think I've seen that one. Does a woman get thrown over a balcony on that one to her death? And yes. then that's kind of what kicks things off. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I have seen that one. That one is a freaking weird as shit. It is. It's intense. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I do remember that one. The only other two that weren't mentioned, because I had King Boxer and one armed swordsman on my honorable mentions, uh, the 36th chamber of, Sha- of Shaolin was on there from 1978. And then Chinatown kid, would uh, a more modern martial arts film, but uh, that one I really love too. So I've got a couple of films to check out here. Bloody Parrot, Come Drink With Me, and Golden Swallow. Um, Cool. Speaking of things to check out, where can people find more of your work, Simon Abrams? Where do you want people to look for you online? The best would be to to, uh, either follow me on Letterboxd or Twitter because those are usually the best. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with my newsletter, but for both Letterboxd and Twitter, it's the same uh, username. It's just Simon Sabrams, so S-I-M-O-N-S-A-Y-E-R-A-M-S. Uh, and uh, just one word, no breaks, no periods. Uh, it's uh, probably the best way to, to keep up to date. I especially, like, if you just want to follow uh, what movies I'm watching, Letterboxd is your best bet because... I put all my reviews on there for the most part. Um, I think there's only like one or two types of pieces that I don't link to, but for uh, liner notes, essays, commentaries, and uh, live events and stuff, Twitter is probably better for now. I'm still, I'm, I'm tempted by, you know, starting up a new newsletter again, but uh, for now, those are the two best places. Okay, cool. We'll have links to those in the show notes along with wherever you can buy The Northman, A Call to the Gods. And of course, if you want that limited edition signed by, we got, uh, what, Skarsgård and Robert Eggers? Yes, sir. Yeah, you got to snag that. So we'll have links to that in the show notes. Simon Abrams, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was a blast. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. This was a pleasure to do. Go pre-order the book, The Northman, A Call to the Gods. The limited edition is on sale right now. The link is in the show notes. Please go support Simon Abrams and just support that amazing movie. Please remember to review the Force 5 podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about the show. These two free, simple things can really help my show audience grow. And if you want to interact with me, I am the person who does all the social media. So at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And of course, you can always talk film with me over on the Cinematics Facebook page. Theme songs today come courtesy of Nate Spears and the top five list bumper was produced by me with music by Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some amazing Shaw Brothers films. (laughs) 